Dave, welcome to Flanagan's Net Positive Podcast. I'm just delighted to have you here. Thanks, Ted. It's great to be here with you as well. Good. And you're and you're you're tuning in from uh, Carbondale, Colorado, up on Missouri Heights. If I'm, is that is that right? Yes. You don't want to see the view I'm looking at because you'll die with envy. I just I know your view so well. It is absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. When I purchased this, I like to say that I had a quarter million dollar house with a three million dollar view. It is just it's it is it's so exceptional up there. I've been up in Missouri Heights, looking out into the mountains. Born and raised where, Dave? Uh, East Bay, California. I was born in San Francisco and grew up just outside of Berkeley in those hills there, overlooking the bay. What a great spot. And what what did Dave Monk like to do when he was a little boy? <laughs> <laughs> I like to get outdoors. I uh, being in the mountain environment's always been a high priority for me and for my family growing up. And so our annual highlight vacation was two weeks in Yosemite, uh, in the higher country there. So uh, that was instilled with me early, and I went backpacking with my dad and spent a lot of time in various parts of the Sierras. Nice. And then and then college off to UC Davis. I noticed. Um, when I was doing a little digging around, I'd forgotten that you had it, the, the word agriculture in your major. Right. Well, basically, I went to a university to get a basic business degree, which uh, an undergrad degree. So that it, you can't just have a regular business degree at, at Davis. Uh, so at UC Davis, it's called agricultural economics slash business management. Right. So you didn't you didn't envision yourself out on a farm at any point in your career? Not so much. <laughs> well, how did you how did you get to Colorado? What was the what was it that uh, shifted you from the Bay Area or, or California to the mountains of Colorado? Well, it's kind of an interesting story as I was reflecting on it, Ted, because right out of college, uh, I worked for a fledgling solar energy company headed by David Springer. And it was one of the first in the country, as I understood it. But I wasn't really equipped or trained or knowledgeable enough to provide anything of value. I realized there was not enough there there for me. And so I figured, well, I better really get out into the world and learn something. So I wasn't really enamored with the, uh, the cities in California at the time. So I decided to take a road trip and uh, ended up in Denver and uh, then kind of jumped into just the basic first job type experiences of management trainees and things like that. So, so then, and then at some point you migrated up into the mountains, up to the Roaring Fork Valley. How long, yeah. were, you, how long were you in Denver? Well, I was in Denver for only a couple of years. I, uh, you know, started in, a, in on a bank management program and they, they fired me, which I later took to be a kind of a compliment. Uh, and then I, then I kind of landed with Westinghouse Electric Supply Company. And so that's sort of like a hardware store for electric products. And I was in their management training program. I started in Denver, got transferred to Grand Junction, Colorado. I was there in 1982 when the oil shale crash happened and that kind of gutted their business. So I actually got transferred from there to Casper, Wyoming, which... Um, was sufficiently dismal to get me to to leave Westinghouse and uh, 
returned to Western Colorado. So then I spent the next few years in publishing sales. And that was Grand Junction. No, I came down to the valley here. I first lived in Carbondale and uh, sort of ran the circuit. I moved from Carbondale to Aspen and then, you know, slowly made my way back down valley to where I am in Carbondale again. And was skiing a big part of your life then? You know, it really wasn't. I was thinking back to when I first skied getting here. I started skiing when I was 11. I was obviously a little bit older when I got here in my, you know, middle 20s. But I basically couldn't ski. And so I remember going out and I moved here in one of the biggest snow years, you know, in it's legendary in 1983, 84 uh, was that was that winter. And then I started uh, working for the ski company, teaching skiing, and that's how I learned to ski. And so I, you know, really took that on. And you and I met in around, I think, around 1990. Um, and I was heading up a company called IRT Environment, and uh, you joined on as our business development person and, and helped me sort of see see some of that. But that that didn't last for very long. But then you you moved on and started working for I think was it Ray Engel, uh, and he had the, he, he was a, basically a showerhead manufacturer. And I remember having that early conversation with him. How do I? He was so interested in, and how do I move from being a showerhead manufacturer to sort of putting my showerheads in kits and getting them out to students uh, in, in the tens of thousands? And, and that's when you joined him to sort of move into that space. That's correct, Ted. I uh, had the great experience of working for two fantastic entrepreneurs in Ray Engel and Christian Shader. And <clears throat> yeah, you you have hit it right on the head uh, manufacturer with a really unique and high performance high efficiency showerhead which was kind of a unique product combination at the time and on top of that fantastic design being sort of an entrepreneur and not having the the horsepower of a Kohler or a delta they were thinking well how can we really make a move into the market and what they did is uh, came up with this concept of combining the hardware with education and then applying that to water and energy utilities for compliance with their then emerging uh, conservation requirements and energy efficiency requirements. Yeah. So how, how, did, that, how did that go? I mean, um, you, I, I recall, you had you know, big utilities here in California, like Southern California Edison as your as your clients, um, talk about sort of how how extensive that became that whole effort. Well, it really it really built out. It predominantly in the West, but it really tracked wherever there were uh, water, and increasingly more so on the energy side. The energy savings were uh, were more significant, and then that was a that was more regulated by public utility commissions. And so these utilities were looking for ways to burnish both their efficiency reputations, but also get some PR benefit of it from it. So having a bunch of fifth and sixth graders out there becoming your ambassadors was an easy uh, ven venue for utilities to sponsor this, knock off a few of their uh, energy efficiency goals, but also get some great press in the meantime. 
Right. So each each student, I mean, you would enroll, uh, I guess a utility would sponsor classroom activities in their territory. And then each student, I, I guess I had a little bit of a hand in de designing the, the early box, but each student would get a little box that would have a shower head and a faucet aerator and I guess a compact fluorescent light bulb, but there are certain there are different configurations of boxes, right? But then they would have these exercises to go home and actually install them. That's correct. So it was designed to be as turnkey as possible for teachers and as hands-on for students as possible. So this engaged the kids in their own learning, but then they obviously became very compelling ambassadors when they took this home and mom and dad came home to see their kid in the uh, standing in the shower with a wrench and a new shower head. So they got a little bit more involved than they might have otherwise. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the energy savings, I mean, but on the water side, and the shower heads are, were really fantastic. I, I remember the, the, the first water efficient shower heads, and I remember the company Niagara, uh, and maybe they've got more advanced products now, but the early Niagara water efficient shower head was something that we all envisioned was used on a submarine and basically squirted water through some very tiny pinholes and almost hurt your skin when it was applied. And then the the ETL, I think it was the Energy Technology Laboratories, was the name of, of Ray Engel's company. And those would suck, as I understand it, here's a very simplistic view, but suck air into that process. So you're not getting pelted with, you know, needle-like needle water. You're getting uh, air, air and water mixed together uh, for a more fulfilling shower. And, and, and what was the flow rate on those shower heads versus a typical one? Well... If memory serves, because now it's been 25, 30 years almost, uh, two and a half gallons per minute and then down to two and a quarter, I believe. But at the time, most shower heads were in the three to five gallons per minute range. And as you correctly point out, the technology at the time wasn't that, you know, consumer friendly. It was kind of like the flickering CFLs that first came out or had really bad startup or poor lighting color. And so, yeah, as you said, they'd either be needles or dribbles or mist. In <laughs> fact, there was actually a Seinfeld episode where Kramer was talking about, you know, he was actually buying a black market shower head because he couldn't get the shampoo out of his hair and it was causing him considerable consternation. And you know, the guy that was selling him, it was kind of backed up a van into an alley and sold him the, uh, the you know, some fantastic X-1000 showerhead. And he says, oh, no, you don't want that. That's for the circus, for elephants. And he says, oh, no, no, I want that. You know, so <laughs> you don't want pressure. So, yeah, we've come a long way. Well, and, and I was uh, just to, to bring it up to the, the current day or the present day, uh, Terry and I were just up at Esalen up at Big Sur for a retreat last weekend, which is beautiful. And in our hotel room uh, or in our room uh, at the Institute, there was an ETL showerhead. And she said, I like the showerhead. It's, it's uh, getting the, the shampoo out of my hair. And I said, oh, that's an ETL. She goes, what? You know about that showerhead? So I came home and uh, just yesterday, uh, I actually, I had a few of the ETL showerheads in my shop. And I just took the one in our bathroom and I put in one of these ETL shower heads and she's very happy about that. I scored some big points. So, but by the way, by the way, is that company still in, in business ETL? 
Yes, well, ironically, you mentioned Niagara. Uh, Niagara acquired ETL. So the designs are now continuing to evolve and become a little bit more consistent. And there's all kinds of uh, versions of this which incorporate handhelds and whatever. But um, it's been a number of years since I've been with a, with a firm. So I moved on and really moved into the uh, utility world more actively when I joined the Holy Cross Energy Board. Yeah, let's 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 shift in, into that because that's the meat of that's the meat of the matter here. And uh, first off, why what uh, what motivated you to run? I mean, this is you have, you're it's an elected position. What motivated you to run to be on the board of directors of Holy Cross Energy? Well, it, it really came out of my experience with uh, ETL and resource action programs, Ted. What I had been inspired by is the you know, the innovation, the creativity, the passion of the various utilities and the individuals I've been working with. And I was right in the midst of some of the most creative and forward-looking program designs. And I thought, man, we should be able to do that here because an electric cooperative is one of the most democratic forms of a utility. It's in in structure and in theory very responsive and adaptive so uh i wanted to be able to experience that and and be able to be stay connected to this uh rapidly transforming industry but yet bring it home to this uh you know somewhat sleepy little valley that we call home and and how was it campaigning Uh, i wouldn't know where to start um was that a difficult thing to do or did you how did you win uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of just kind of having a simple, easy to understand platform, you know, of uh, <clears throat> clean energy, uh, transparency, and being respons- responsive to member interests, and then getting the word out and just, it's a, a lot of get out the vote type of uh, activities. So... Mm-hmm. It's uh, surprising that even in a really engaged area, the turnouts are, are very light. And so you get some momentum going and, and it's, I, I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> kind of gloss over it, but it's, uh, it was great. It, you know, okay. letters to the editor, email chains. This was before social media was really a thing, uh, but Facebook was, you know, sort of a shadow of what it was today, what it is today. And uh utilize that. Well, congratulations. And, and what would you say I mean, those early years in particular, what were the biggest challenges? Um, you know, you wanted to, you, as I read in your, some of your materials, you know, you wanted to make this a really consumer centric, you know, utility. Um, that, that's a, you know, that's um, kind of trying to, trying to shift the model, I guess, from, you know, sort of centralized power plants and you know uh, a utility that is just delivering a commodity to a utility that's focused on what consumers really need and want well that's right that is that was one of the real drivers for me because i saw the evolution of the the broader utility industry from being just sort of a commodity sales model where you're just out there you're like a kilowatt hour store and selling as many elect kilowatt hours as possible and that first moved into perhaps a more competitive 
mindset. You're still a monopoly as an investor owned, but many utilities were shifting into this consumer centric mindset. And so that's where you're really looking at energy, electricity and energy services, related services from the perspective of your consumers. And so that's the big shift that was going on as I started in 2010. And that's, you know, to get that rolling requires um, some patience, some politics, and then some movement as far as uh, prices and barriers to the evolution of both different program opportunities and none bigger than uh, affecting how our power supply is configured and what our sources of electricity are. And then as a, as a director, our primary responsibility is a fiduciary one. So we can't just go 100% clean energy overnight without you know, raising our rates through the roof and uh, upsetting our member owners and getting kicked off the board. So there's a real balancing act that's required to, to really affect progress. And one of your biggest uh, moves, I guess, as a board was to bring in Brian Hennigan as your, as your general manager, right? Absolutely. You know, the, one of the biggest uh, responsibilities right after ensuring the financial health of the organization is to set strategic priorities and hire and oversee the, this president and CEO, the leader of the staff. And so when we brought, on, brought Brian on board, this was reflective of our priorities and also uh, with a great deal of enthusiasm and anticipation of the perspective that he could bring because he had been such a di- had such a diverse background between the White House and Congress and research labs and um, those types of positions that coming in, he'd been working uh, at everything around an electric utility except at an electric utility. But he brought the vision and that outside perspective to us, to Holy Cross, to the benefit of our membership, and really to the benefit of the industry as a whole. Yeah, so we're I'm tremendously excited about that. Terribly impressed by what you all have done as a board and what he's done as a GM and Chris Bilby and staff there that are just doing amazing works. And I love this uh, ex- uh, this phrase that I also got from some of your materials, just the that Holy Cross has been involved with the aggressive pursuit of economical clean energy, the aggressive pursuit. And this, this kind of relates back to some of my work here in Glendale that you and I have talked about. Uh, you know, we're certainly in a pursuit of economical clean energy, but I think Holy Cross is, is up the game and is in the aggressive, aggressive pursuit. What would you say what are some of the, of Holy Cross's greatest accomplishments, um, you know, during your tenure? Well, I think that we, you know, early on, one of the one of the things that we accomplished was to broaden what at the time was a kind of like a public benefits charge. In other words, a surcharge on every kilowatt hour sold, which was we call our We Care program. And this was a 2% uh, fund. It was an adder that was placed before I came on board. And this was inspired by uh, Randy Udall. Uh, he had a lot of in, in influence there. It was used primarily for the acquisition of increasing uh, in the early renewable energy 
power sources. When I came on board, we expanded that to carve out half of that to be used for energy efficiency. So that was a that was a big milestone. Um, another milestone that I like to point towards that connects to this consumer-centric evolution is the evolution of our communications program, which went from, you know, keep the lights on, the rates low and your mouth shut to something that was a lot more interactive. And so not only did we start developing more energy service and consumer programs and talking about them, but we're also what now in the third stage of that, where we're really seeking more input and a real interactive relationship with our membership. And then of course the crown jewel, I, I believe in my opinion, and I think for our membership and our board and our staff is now our um, 100 by 30 program, which uh, aims to be 100% renewable energy by 2030. And this was released in 2020 uh, again, leading the um, leading the pack industry wide, and certainly among co-ops nationally, to to have that type of a goal. Beyond that, uh, we're working towards increased resilience. As you know, we've had a lot of wildfires here. Uh, some of those came perilously close to having significant impact on uh, our ability to provide electric service. And then also equity is kind of the other personal goal of mine, which we're working on. It's, it's not a milestone or achievement yet, but that's kind of where we're heading. Yeah. Well, it's congratulations on all those, your, your role in, in all of those. And when you, when you mentioned the crown jewel, um, and then you mentioned the, the, the target, the hundred by 30 program, I thought you were going to talk about uh, Holy Cross's brand new five megawatt photovoltaic installation really at the entrance to Aspen, sort of in a, in a spot that uh, I know I know a little bit of the history of it being a sanitation spreading field, but uh, you, you just can't imagine that you would have a ground mount in Aspen given the, the real estate values. Um, so that's a pretty cool accomplishment too, and a, a really visible statement uh, for all of the people in the Valley and all of the visitors in the Valley. Right, well, you know, we've got a number of, uh, components, building blocks, if you will, that are just kind of building the stairway to achieve this. That uh, that five meg megawatt Pitkin solar project is a great one. It's somewhat visible, if not too visible. We don't say that to uh, to the NIMBYs that, uh, that that put up the resistance to that. We've got a number of other um, great individual projects. You've mentioned Chris Philby, and he worked closely with Brian in some of these uh, real creative and dynamic projects. Uh, Basalt Vista is another one, which is uh, a net zero affordable housing project that's uh, located next to a school that houses teachers and county workers. That's a wonderful example of affordable housing that also provides a uh, sort of a real-time workshop for Chris and the, uh, the engineers. Um, We've got some electrified school buses uh, in the pipeline. We've got a number of other sort of resilience efforts as well, as well as some real innovative wildfire mitigation uh, efforts that's increasingly important here. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, go, it spans the spectrum. And 
you know, our staff just is such is so engineering oriented and future oriented to build a more resilient and interactive grid that's really necessary, not only for the stability of our service and the reliability of our service, but also to enable this uh, fully you know, fully renewable energy future. It's gonna rely on some element of a distributed generation, distributed energy resource model to get all the way to 100. Yeah, well, well put. Now you mentioned Randy Udall. Uh, I worked with Randy at Rocky Mountain Institute. Uh, I guess Alice Laird and then Randy were instrumental in forming CORE, the Community Office for Resource Efficiency, a nonprofit serving originally the Aspen, Aspen and Pitkin County, uh, and I guess it has expanded to the Roaring Fork Valley. You, uh, I guess Holy Cross uh, has a seat at the on the board and you've been filling that seat for five or six years. Let's talk a little bit about CORE and how you, what, I know you feel strongly about that organization. Yes, that's right, Ted. It's a great, it's a great organization. It's uh, 28 years old now, founded by Randy Udall. One of its uh, real early achievements that propelled it forward was uh, the Renewable Energy Mitigation Program called REMP, whereby these monster homes that get built that have a high energy footprint uh, either have to provide on-site renewables to offset their impacts or pay into a fund. And so that fund had been, has been very significant. And it's, uh, it's been sort of the legacy funding source for this office that then turned around and funded projects through grants, rebates, and uh, demonstration projects to effectively deliver a higher greenhouse gas impact, reduction impact, than would have been achieved just by a net zero on-site uh, project. Right. And then uh, you've gone through lots of changes at CORE recently. Uh, you're, you're bringing in a new executive director. I know you've been very instrumental with um, sort of re-envisioning uh, how this 28 year old now, you know, takes it to the next, takes it to the next level and has a broader value and in, in climate action in the, in the whole Valley. Yeah, that's right. Um, we're really excited about the transition that's we're in the middle of right now, where my, in my view, we're shifting from an energy focus to a climate focus. And that just really aligns well with, the move at the utility level. I mean, the city of Aspen's already 100% renewable. Holy Cross is well on its way. And so as those utilities, which are such a, such a low hanging target for climate reduction and carbon reduction, as they clean up the electric supply, then it sort of shifts the approach to climate action. And that's really where I'm excited to see core gain a lot more traction. And, and the way I look at it, Ted, is there in our valley, there's been a lot of uh, movement towards climate action plans and pronouncements and commitments. So the political will is there. But then the question remains, how are you going to actually get there? And how are you going to do that responsibly, which is, you know, goes back to that fiduciary responsibility that I, you know, have experience with at Holy Cross. So I'm really excited about 
the uh, dynamic future that I see awaiting CORE to affect our region, which is three counties, and then per, per potentially also showing how climate gets done at the ground level. Yeah, good, good stuff. Dave, you're one of, um, you're one of the most positive people that I've ever met. Uh, and uh, you smile, uh, your smile is contagious. And, and I think that's just a terrific trait. And how do you, uh, I know you've got one of the greatest gals uh, as, as Stephanie, your wife uh, in the world, but how do you stay so positive and, and keep a balance between raising a family and working and being a board member and volunteering here and there? How do you, how do you do it all? Well, I think it's a matter of perspective. And so being able to just go outside, appreciate where I live, uh, maybe get a little exercise or activity, I, that just is very grounding for me. And, you know, I do really appreciate the, the blessing that it is to be able to live in a mountain area. Uh, I've, I've kind of been a remote worker for over, well, nearly 40 years by now. So I was way ahead of the curve. I remember when fax machines came out and I, I, going back even further, I remember my dad saying, no, 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 don't, don't look at a career in forestry, you know, get a job that you like that pays you enough money so you can go to the mountains on the weekends. Well, fortunately, the world's changed dramatically since that time, probably 50 years ago. And um, so I, I really do appreciate where I live. I get out there on, a, on skis, on a mountain bike, on a raft when I can, but just looking out the window pausing for a moment when I'm, you know, out on the lawn, looking at the sky or whatever. And, uh, that, uh, I, that's probably the biggest, biggest, uh, lever I can pull. Well, thanks again, Dave. It's been great to share a little bit of time with you and get some insights on, um, certainly on the operations of Holy Cross energy and the philosophy behind its current structure. So that's it folks. Thanks again for joining this episode of Flanagan's Net Positive Podcast. We'll see you next time.